Hey, I want to begin. Uh, I want to begin this morning by uh, sharing a little bit about uh, last week's message. Um, my, uh, I, I, for, I think for some of us, um, make sure this is up high enough. I think uh, some of us uh, last week um, heard my message and heard my passion and heard it in the way that I had hoped to communicate it. And then I think there were a, a few others who maybe heard something a little bit different than what I had intended. And so I wanted to make one thing clear from last week. Um, I had made a comment with respect to uh, partnering with other uh, peoples and organizations. And I had spoken about how it, it was uh, rather strange that, that we were uh, joining hands with the Mormons on Proposition 8. And I, I spoke about how it's rather strange that we waited and waited for the Catholics to take the lead on the matter of abortion coverage in our latest uh, health care policy in this nation. And my hope and my intent in making those statements was to say how disappointed I am in evangelicals for not taking the lead on these issues. But I think rather than expressing my disappointment in evangelical Christians, I think instead there were moments in which I expressed great disdain toward other groups like the Mormons and the Catholics. And let me be very clear. Um, you know, we as, uh, I myself, as a Christian pastor, I love everyone and I want to express love for everyone. I love Mormons and I love Catholics. And uh, while I think that there is great disagreement between myself and a Mormon, and while I think there is considerable difference between me and a Catholic, I don't want to come across as being, uh, as de degenerating those groups. And so if you understood it in that way last week, I want to apologize. That was not my intent. My intent was to express frustration with our own group that we are not in the lead on these issues. And I, uh, I believe that we, could do, we can do a better job of raising the bar when it comes to defending traditional marriage, to raising the bar when it comes to defending the unborn, and that we don't have to wait around for the Mormons to rise up and lead the charge, or for the Catholic Church to rise up and lead the charge, that evangelicals should be leading the charge on these issues. That was my heart, and I wanted to clarify that today. Let's all stand, and I want to pray together uh, with all of us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, O oh Lord, uh, when you speak many words, sometimes you can be misinterpreted, Father. And I just uh, confess, Lord, now that if, I, if my heart was awry or, or misunderstood, I pray, Lord, that you would uh, just forgive me for that and that uh, those who heard it in that way would also uh, express just forgiveness. God, we want, to, uh, we want to be people who love all peoples, both pagans and those of other religions, both Christian and non. And Father, there is a measure of camaraderie we can have with other groups. Though there are also times where we need to separate. Father, help us to be wise to know when those moments are to join hands and when those moments are to stay separate. Father, that's a, a tight rope to walk and we pray that you give us wisdom in walking that line. Now, Lord, we ask your blessing upon this time in your word. As we continue our study in Daniel, help us to be wise and to be uh, careful 
with your word, Lord, to extract from it the principles that you would have for us today. We pray it all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Open up your Bibles to Daniel chapter 11. Daniel chapter 11. We're going to be in our third part of a five-part series in the final vision of Daniel. Chapters 10, 11, and 12. And you may have noticed lately, but I'm getting... uh, I'm taking a, tech, uh, a technology sabbatical. Uh, I, I'm tired of making PowerPoints lately. And, uh, and so we're going to focus again. I've given you a more extensive handout because, quite frankly, my eyes are getting dried out on the computer lately. So how many of you uh, don't mind a technological sabbatical every once in a while? Okay, thank you. Forgive me for those of you who must have something on the screen. I'll, I'll, I'll try and bring that back shortly. But uh, we're going to go old school. Today. Daniel chapter 11, beginning in verse 21. And before we begin, I, I wanted to share with you uh, my experience in college and in uh, seminary in the 90s and early 2000s. I got to school. My, my parents had cut a deal with me when I graduated high school. They said, Neil, they said, we will pay for half of your college and I said, hey, that's, that's a pretty good deal. So I, I was excited about that because Biola was a pretty penny. And uh, so my parents, yeah, sure enough, they, they helped and, and they, they brought in half of my education uh, that first year. And I kind of looked around and I said, okay, now where do I find the other half? And uh, sure enough, I had a very close friend. And this friend was the U.S. government. And the U.S. government came to me and said, Neil... We've got lots of money. Come on over here and we'll help pay for your education. And I thought, U.S. government, you're my friend. And I started signing on the dotted lines. And I just signed and signed and signed. I must have signed 10 or 20 times. And sure enough, I was able to pay for college and seminary because of my good friend, the U.S. government. Well, now I've learned a little bit more about my friend. And I've come to learn that, that my friend was not just giving me the money, as I thought he might have been as my, in my freshman and sophomore years, but I realize now, and I've been realizing the last number of years, that my friend actually wanted me to pay it back. That I had something due after all of those signatures. That it wasn't just free money. And really, in that day and age, and I think many of you who, who maybe went to college in that day and age, you can attest to the fact that it was easy to get money. It was easy to get student loans. It was simple to pay for those things. And now, looking back, we look at those days and we think, wow, that's not free money. It, one day, that, it's not just a payout. It's not just a reward. One day, that will need to be paid back. And in our study in Daniel 11 today, we will look at a person, Antiochus Epiphanes, who paid out and, gave, and, and put many on the dole, so to speak, of the northern kingdom of the Seleucid Empire. Antiochus paid and paid and paid and he gave people gifts and he gave people money and he gave people bribes and he gave people payouts. But one day, one day, all of that came due. And on the day it came due, Antiochus was ruthless for a return on his investment. We are in the book of Daniel. We are concluding the book of Daniel. We're at the very end. 
There are really only this and two more messages in the book of Daniel. And here we are in chapters 10, 11, and 12 in the final vision of the book of Daniel. A messenger from God, perhaps Jesus Himself, has come to speak to Daniel in chapter 10. And their conversation continues in chapter 11 and chapter 12. But beginning in chapter 11, Daniel is told about some 400 years of coming kings and kingdoms. And at times, it can be very cumbersome to read. But there's good reason why God's messenger gives Daniel these details. In fact, there are four good reasons. And we spoke about them last week, but I wanted to review them and I wanted to highlight the third. But the first reason on your outline, why does God give this vision to Daniel? The first reason is this, to give us confidence in the prophetic accuracy of Scripture. Because all that the messenger of God told Daniel, it came to pass. And so we look at it now from the future and we look back and we can see all that came to pass. Secondly, this vision demonstrates how generations of wickedness brings chaos and destruction on the earth. We looked at that deeply last week. Generations of wickedness brings chaos. But thirdly, and here's where I want us to fill in the blank again, because here's where we're going to focus today, to show, thirdly, to show how Israel will be affected by future kings and kingdoms. To show how Israel will be affected by future kings and kingdoms. And fourth, to remind us that God will intervene in the last day to make all things right. Four reasons why we are reading what we are reading. And let's take a look at verse 21 in our Bibles. Chapter 11, verses 21 and following. The the vision to Daniel continues. It says in verse 21, And in his place, that is Seleucus' place, the previous king they were speaking of, in his place shall arise a vile person to whom they will not give the honor of royalty, but he shall come in peaceably and seize the kingdom by intrigue. And with the force of a flood, they shall be swept away from before him and be broken, and also the prince of the covenant. Now once again, just like last week, I put in brackets there the persons to whom scholars attribute these pronouns. When it says he or or him or so-and-so did this, I put in brackets. It's not in the original Hebrew, but I put in brackets there. Biblical scholars, their best guess as to who this pertains to. And there's a pretty good consensus here uh, that that these names... uh, There's a good consensus that these names are in fact... Um, that the persons Daniel was, was understanding about. And so we read in verse 21, in his place, that is, Seleucus IV, who was spoken of in verse 20, in his place shall arise a vile person. Upon the death of King Seleucus, we're talking about the northern kingdom of Greece, Syria, in the year 175 B.C., the northern kingdom of Syria and the entire Greek empire was on its last legs. It had been split up four ways since the time of Alexander the Great. And two of those four kingdoms had grown in power. The northern kingdom of Syria and the southern kingdom of Egypt. But years and years and years of war and failed treaties had weakened the kingdoms. And we read about that 
in the early part of chapter 11 last week. Years and years of war and failed treaty. And really, by the time of Seleucus' death in 175 B.C., world historians have all but moved on from the Greek Empire. Their attention was turning now to the new and rising Empire of Rome. But the Bible devotes great attention to the next decade of Greek history. And there's a very good reason for it. I've given you a quote at the bottom of the first page from John Walvoord. He writes this, beginning with verse 21, a major section of Daniel 11 is devoted to a comparatively obscure Syrian ruler. But from the standpoint of Scripture, this was the most important feature of the entire third empire of Greece. What I mean by that is, when world historians look at this time period, this decade that we're going to look at right now, it's kind of a blip on the screen. They don't pay much attention to it because the Greek Empire was on the decline and the Roman Empire was on the rise. But from a biblical perspective, from a scriptural perspective, the Jewish people focus and zero in on these ten years, on this decade of Antiochus's reign, the man we will learn about here shortly, because of how much he disrupted and caused havoc to the Jewish people. And so we come back again to our third point as to why God is giving this vision to Daniel to show how Israel will be affected by future kings and kingdoms. And let me say that never has there been a king who affected Israel more than King Antiochus Epiphanes. Who was Antiochus Epiphanes? Who was this vile person? Well, Antiochus Epiphanes, we've learned about before, but we're going to learn a little bit more today. He and Seleucus, King Seleucus, were actually brothers. In fact, Seleucus had named one of his sons Antiochus, after his brother and his father before him. And uh, his brother, Antiochus Epiphanes, was so enamored by the fact that his brother had named his son Antiochus, he was so enamored by the fact that his nephew was named after him, that when his brother died, Antiochus came back to Syria and slaughtered his nephew that he might take the throne. Actually, he didn't kill his nephew. He had another man do it, Andronicus. And after Andronicus killed his nephew, he had Andronicus killed to cover it all up. So Antiochus Epiphanes was, uh, needless to say, he wasn't exactly a family man. Uh, he was a little devious. Uh, he was. Uh, we're going to learn a little, little more about how, uh, how treacherous he was. Needless to say, so there, therefore, the, the scriptures uh, speak of him here as a vile person. At the end of verse 21, it states that he'll seize the kingdom by intrigue. Now, the word intrigue there is Hebrew. It means smooth or sly. And of course, if a word means smooth, then that means it probably just rolls off the tongue. Very smooth-like, right? Well, I've given you the word there. I want you to look at it at the top of page 2 there. We're going to say this super smooth word in Hebrew because it just it means smooth. It just, it's like butter. Ready to say it together? It's chalakakoth. Okay? Now, I want you to say it with me. Ready? Chalakakoth. Come on, one more time. Chalakakoth. Smooth, like butter, you know? Just rolls off the tongue, right? Alright, that didn't go over as well as I thought it would be. I thought you guys would just be rolling on the floor with that one. 
That is not a smooth word. But nevertheless, Antiochus Epiphanes, he is described as a man of intrigue. He's smooth. He's sly. He's got smooth speech. He looks sharp. And the people of the northern kingdom of Syria were taken by him. They were enamored by him for a time. And he curried the favor of many. We'll see how in just a moment. But verse 22 gives us a brief glimpse into what eventually happened during Antiochus' reign. In time, many would be swept away, it says in verse 22, swept away by the force of Antiochus' armies, including the Prince of the Covenant. Now, who is this? Obviously, the word covenant makes us think of Israel, right? Covenant, the law. And when you look back in history, around the time of Antiochus' reign, one Jewish leader rises in prominence who could be called the Prince of the Covenant. His name was Onias III. And he was the Jewish high priest at the time that Antiochus came to power. And sure enough, to solidify his power, Antiochus had Onias murdered. The Prince of the Covenant swept away. But how did Antiochus become so powerful? How did he fool so many? That's the subject of verse 23. Let's look at it. Verse 23 in chapter 11. And after the league is made with him, he shall act deceitfully, for he shall come up and become strong with a small number of people. He shall enter peaceably, even into the richest parts, places of the province. And he shall do what his fathers have not done, nor his forefathers. He shall disperse among them the plunder, the spoil, the riches, and he shall devise his plans against the strongholds, but only for a time. He shall stir up his power and his courage against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall be stirred up to battle with a very great and mighty army, but he shall not stand, for they shall devise plans against him. Yes, those who eat of the portion of his delicacies shall destroy him. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. Both these kings' hearts shall be bent on evil, and they shall speak lies at the same table, but it shall not prosper, for the end will still be at the appointed time. What's going on here? In the early years as king, Antiochus earned an early victory against his nemesis to the south, who was actually related to him. Ptolemy VI was the leader of the southern kingdom of Egypt at the time. And Antiochus IV, Epiphanes, he went to war against Ptolemy VI. And he won an early victory in his reign as king of the northern, of the northern kingdom of Syria. Now, remember, um, now as, he, as he took Ptolemy and the Egyptians, as he, as he went in, as he secured the victory, he took Ptolemy as his puppet. He didn't kill him. Instead, he decided to use him to form a league with him, to form an alliance or a coalition with him. We read about that in verse 23. It says, and after the league is made. But then it goes on to say, he, in verse 23, he shall act deceitfully. That is, Antiochus shall act deceitfully. You see, Antiochus only meant for the coalition to benefit him. He used this short time of peace to conduct espionage. He sent spies 
into the southern kingdom of Egypt to determine which influential members of the southern kingdom might switch allegiance to the north given the right motivation, the right payment. He used this time of peace, Antiochus did, to build up strength for another attack on Egypt. And notice verse 25. Notice verse 25. It says, He shall stir up his power and his courage against the king of the south. That's Ptolemy VI again. With a great army. And the king of the south shall be stirred up to battle with a very great and mighty army. That is to say, there was another battle in which now Antiochus had already sent spies. He had sent people to enter and infiltrate the southern kingdom who were sympathetic to the north. And he went to war again. And this time, the king of the south rose up again, Ptolemy VI, in the middle of verse 25, the king of the south shall be stirred up to battle with a very great and mighty army, but he shall not stand, for they shall devise plans against him. Yes, notice verse 26. Yes, those who eat of the portion of Ptolemy's delicacies shall destroy him. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. About the time of 169 B.C., Antiochus dealt another crushing blow to the southern kingdom of Egypt. Verse 26 indicates that the battle had been won through treachery, through deceit, through espionage. Antiochus had turned many of Ptolemy's own men against him. Even those who ate of the portion of the king's delicacies. Men at Ptolemy's own table turned on him because Antiochus had motivated them. How did he do that? How did Antiochus Epiphanes motivate a nation that was not his own to turn on their king and align with the north? How did he convince some of Ptolemy's own men to turn against him? The Bible actually provides the answer in verse 24. God's messenger prophesies to Daniel. He says, this is how he'll do it. Look at verse 24 again. He shall enter peaceably, Antiochus will, even into the richest places of the province. And he shall do what his fathers have not done, nor his forefathers. He shall disperse among them the plunder, the spoil, the riches. And he shall devise his plans against the strongholds, but only for a time. In a word, he bribed everyone. How did Antiochus get Ptolemy's own men to turn against him? He bribed everyone. Antiochus did what his fathers did not do, what his forefathers did not do. They hoarded their riches. Antiochus instead, a man of smooth rhetoric, a man of cunningness, he took the spoils of war and he walked down and he dispersed it to those whom he knew would form an alliance, a coalition with him, if only they were given the right motivation. Sound familiar? Have you ever seen that in human history before? Maybe that's, maybe that's the story of human history. I don't know. All that is to say, friends... Be so very careful about receiving 
unjust money. Be so very careful about receiving unjust money. I, uh, I was speaking to a pastor friend of mine recently. And he shared, he shared with me something a month ago um, that's going to stick with me for hopefully my whole life. He, uh, he was telling me, a local uh, pastor friend of mine, he was telling me how uh, he, you know, he had earned a salary at his church and he had earned a certain portion of, of his salary from his work at the church and he had paid a certain amount of taxes on that salary uh, for, uh, for his work. He had paid it to the federal government. And after a few weeks, after filing his taxes, a few weeks went by and he received a check from the government. And the check that he received from the government, it far exceeded, far exceeded the taxes that he had paid to the government to begin with. In other words, not only had the federal government returned to my friend, and this pastor friend of mine, not only had the government returned to him every dollar that he had paid in, but the government had also given him more money. More money than he had paid in. A few thousand dollars more, actually. And when he got the money, his immediate reaction was, wow, free money. And he went over to the bank, and he signed the back, and he deposited it and put it right into his account, right then and there. But a few days went by, and a few weeks went by, and he got to thinking. And he thought, how is it that the government could not only return to me every tax dollar I gave them, but also issue me a $3,000 check on top of it all? And he realized, he realized what was happening. He realized that a government system had been put into place by both parties, by the way, that a system had been put into place that would take from the federal treasury and give it as a gift, a bribe? No, a gift to those who perhaps needed it most. To the poor. To the working class. To those who maybe don't have quite enough. And he realized, my, my friend did, he realized right then and there that, wait a minute, there's no such thing as free money. There's no such thing as a free lunch. He realized then and there that the government had paid him either by borrowing the money or by taking it from one group and giving it to him. And he said to me, he said, I knew, he said, Neil, I knew that by depositing that check, I was participating in unjust borrowing and bribery. And he vowed to me that he would never do that again. He vowed to me that if he ever received a check like that again, he would send it back to the government. This was a conversation I had just one month ago. And i got to say, friends, I was so convicted as this pastor spoke about this matter. Because there have been a couple years in my life, in our life as a family, there have been a couple years where we have paid taxes to the federal government and received a check back that was not only for all the taxes I had paid, 
but a few thousand dollars more. And I, like my pastor friend before me, said, wow, free money. Let me sign it. Let's deposit it. I deposited that money without a care in the world. It never even occurred to me that maybe, just maybe, I was unwittingly, unwittingly, unknowingly participating in my own nation's $15 trillion debt problem. I naively thought, I've got nothing to do with that. I've done nothing wrong. How naive. I receiving a check for more money than I paid in. How naive of me. Be careful when you receive unjust money. God is calling us to higher standards. This pastor's vow, my friend, this pastor, his vow is a good vow. It's a vow that I've now taken. That we would not participate in contributing to this nation's borrowing. That we would not participate in taking money that we did not earn. That we would not participate in taking from one group just so I can have a little bit more. May we never participate in that. May may the gifts that we receive, if we are in need, may they be of the benevolence of another's heart or of the church. But may it not come at the expense of someone else. May we not earn money. May we not receive money that we did not earn. May we not receive money that our nation borrowed just to give us. It is unjust. And I'll say, friends, um, I know, believe, I, I stand first in line, first in line on this matter. I've deposited those checks. And I tell you today, I won't deposit one of those checks again. It is unjust money. It is bribery. It is stealing from others. It is putting our nation in debt when we take more than we've earned. And I'm going to stick a post-it note on it the next time I get an overage check. And I'm going to put Isaiah 24, verses 2 and 3. You can read it on your outline. Isaiah writes, As with the lender, so with the borrower. As with the creditor, so with the debtor. The land shall be entirely emptied and utterly plundered. For the Lord has spoken this word. Let us not fall into the trap of that day. Let us rise above it. We have higher standards. Antiochus Epiphanes, friends, was a master of bribery. He was a master of payoffs. He was corrupt to the core. And the culture loved it for a time. More gold. More checks from Antiochus. My goodness, it's good to live in the northern kingdom of Syria. My goodness, it's good to be on the dole down in Egypt. But the payments are coming due. The payments are coming due. Antiochus, he sacked the Egyptians through treachery, through taking great spoil and riches and bribing others to betray Ptolemy. But on his way back north, his lust for power turned upon another group. We pick up the story in verse 28. Look at verse 28 of chapter 11. While returning to his land with great riches, his heart shall be moved against the Holy Covenant, so he shall do damage and return to his own land. What's going on here? Back in verse 14, look back in verse 14, we see that violent men of the Jews had joined Antiochus' father 
in fighting the Egyptians. Back in verse 14, uh, about a generation earlier, violent men, that is zealots of the Jews, had joined hands with the north to fight against Egypt, to fight against the southern kingdom. And it had bought them nothing in return. Instead, they received higher taxes from Seleucus IV. They received destruction in their land, more war, more chaos. And sure enough, Antiochus IV followed in the footsteps of his father and his brother before him. He brought in great destruction upon the land of Israel. He killed the faithful high priest Onias. He caused great division in Israel. Division between faithful Jews, Jews who wanted to uphold their faith, their commitment to the law, to the Word, and then against Jews who had been bought, who had been paid for, who were on the dole of Antiochus Epiphanes. There was a a schism, a civil war in Jerusalem among the faithful Jews and among those who were on the government dole, who liked the payouts, who enjoyed receiving the checks. And there was chaos and there was conflict. And Antiochus heard in 168 B.C., he heard about civil war. He heard that civil war was imminent. And so he went back, it says in verse 28, while returning to his land with great riches, his heart was moved against the Holy Covenant, so he shall do damage and return to his own land. And did you know that the Maccabean, the writers of the, of the book of Maccabees, it's an apocryphal book, it's not in our Bibles, but it has historical value. The authors of the, Maccabee, uh, the book of Maccabees has verified this prophetic portion of Scripture. Look on your outline. It's 2 Maccabees chapter 5, verses 11 to 14, and how it confirms Daniel's prophecy. It says this, When the king, Antiochus, came to hear that Judea was in revolt, he therefore marched from Egypt, raging like a wild beast, and he began storming the city, that is Jerusalem. He ordered the soldiers to cut down without mercy everyone they encountered and to butcher all who took refuge in their homes. It was a massacre of young and old, a slaughter of women and children, a butchery of young girls and infants. There were 80,000 victims in the course of three days. 40,000 dying by violence and as many again being sold into slavery. That's what Israel received in return for her alliance with the north. He came back, salivating for power, and he came into a civil war situation and he wreaked havoc. He sided with those whom he had paid out and he wreaked havoc against both faithful Jews but also those who were on the dole. It was a time of great chaos in the land of Israel. The Jewish people had compromised their faith in God for a handout from a pagan ruler and it brought them great destruction, suffering, and death. But Antiochus' days would soon be numbered. Look at verse 29 to 31. And at the appointed time, he shall return and go toward the south again to Egypt. But it shall not be like the former or the latter times. For ships from Cyprus shall come against Antiochus, and therefore he shall be grieved and return in rage against the Holy Covenant and do damage So he shall return and show regard for those who who forsake the Holy Covenant. And forces shall be mustered by him, and they shall defile the sanctuary fortress. Then they shall take away the daily sacrifices and place there the abomination of desolation. 
Like anyone who amasses great power, Antiochus got greedy. And with his, his own armed forces, wearied by wars, Antiochus turned southward again in an attempt to annihilate the southern kingdom. But God's messenger tells Daniel that it would not work this time. This time, ships from Cyprus would come and would intervene in Antiochus's path to Alexandria. History demonstrates that these ships from Cyprus were none other than the ships of the great Roman Empire. And in 168 B.C., the Roman Empire, Gaius uh, Pompilius, met Antiochus's forces just north of Alexandria. And the Roman general, he asked Antiochus for a full and complete withdrawal from the southern kingdom of Egypt. And Antiochus turned to the Roman general, the, the, the new and rising Roman Empire, <coughs> and he turned to the general, General Pompilius, and he said, let me think about it. And instead of letting Antiochus think about it, the general, the Roman general, took his staff and he put it in the sand and he proceeded to, 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 to draw a circle around where Antiochus was standing. And he drew a circle in the sand. And he looked at Antiochus and he said, before you leave this circle in the sand, you will tell me whether or not you will withdraw. Thus we get the line, a line in the sand. That's where it comes from. And Antiochus looked at General Pompileus and realized he could not defeat Rome. And he retreated. He went back north to his homeland. Defeated. Grieved. Humiliated. And what does someone do when they're humiliated? What do they do? Well, people react differently, don't they? But a man like Antiochus, when he is humiliated, he reacts with great violence and anger. Antiochus, grieved and humiliated, sought to strike back at anyone or anything that he could. And there was one group that served as a perfect target. It was the Jews. Verse 30 indicates that he returned in rage against the Holy Covenant to do damage. He mustered forces again. And they defiled the sanctuary fortress. Then they took away the daily sacrifice and placed there the abomination of desolation. The book of Maccabees again confirms this prophecy of Daniel. This is awful reading, but we, we need to see what took place in that day and age. Second Maccabees chapter 6, it reads like this on the back of your outline. Antiochus forced the Jews to violate their ancestral customs and live no longer by the laws of God, to profane the temple in Jerusalem and dedicate it to the Olympian Zeus. The temple was filled with reveling and debauchery by the Gentiles. No one might either keep the Sabbath or observe the traditional feasts or so much as admit to being a Jew. A decree was issued ordering the execution of those who would not voluntarily conform to Greek customs. Two women were charged with having circumcised their child and they were paraded publicly around the town with their babies hung at their breasts and then they were hurled over the city wall. Other people who had assembled in some nearby caves to keep the seventh day or the Sabbath without, attraction, without attracting attention, they were denounced to Philip where they were all burnt to death together. And this is just the beginning of what happened. 
humiliated by Rome. Antiochus turned his armies and his wrath upon the one people group he could control, the Jewish people. And the Jews experienced a time of trouble like they had never seen before. A time of trouble that that the only thing that we could liken it to today is the Holocaust of World War II. But then, then there's also a coming time of trouble of which this is a glimpse, of which World War II and the Holocaust is a glimpse. And all of this that we are reading in Daniel is but a prelude to what is coming. We'll study that in our next portion of Daniel. But in the end, there were two groups in Jerusalem. Two groups. One who remained faithful to the Lord unto death. And others who were accepting bribes and payments. Who sacrificed their souls for the promise of wealth and riches only to be betrayed. God's messenger recounts the stark contrast between these two groups. We finish in verse 32 to verse 35. Those who do wickedly against the covenant, Antiochus shall corrupt with flattery. But the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. And those of the people who understand shall instruct many. Yet for many days they shall fall by sword and flame, by captivity and plundering. Now when they fall, they shall be aided with a little help, but many shall join with them by intrigue. And some of those of understanding shall fall to refine them, to purify them, and make them white until the time of the end, because it is still for the appointed time. Antiochus corrupted many of God's people by the promise of riches and the smoothness of his words. The same Hebrew word for smooth, kalakakah, that word that just rolls off the tongue like butter. That same word for smooth we see again in verse 32, flattery. He flattered many. We see it again in verse 34, intrigue. Many people were taken by intrigue, by his smoothness, by his slyness, by his cunningness. Many were taken in by Antiochus' appeal. But some stood their ground in fierce defense of the Jewish religion and culture, led by Judas Maccabeus. Many faithful Jews carried out great exploits in that day. Faithful Jews gave counsel to their fellow countrymen during that time. Counsel not unlike the wisdom that I received last month from my pastor friend. Counsel that reminds us, reminds us all that we ought not participate in the taking of unjust money. That we ought not participate in our culture's enslavement to debt and spending money we do not have. Or taking it from one group and giving it to another. But while the Maccabees would soon throw off the bonds of Antiochus Epiphanes, the damage had been done. And Israel had experienced a great time of purging and refinement. Verse 35 concludes, And some of those of understanding shall fall to refine them, to purify them, to make them white until the time of the end. It was a time of great purging for the nation. Daniel 11. Prophecy from the perspective of Daniel. History from our perspective. And yet another history lesson that we can glean a lot from 
I want to give us three application points as we close out today. Three things that we can receive from this history lesson. The first, separate yourself from any participation in unjust government action. Separate yourself from any participation in unjust government action. That goes from receiving a check that is not yours to listening to a, you know, a, a, a government order that we must mandate abortion coverage in all our health plans. Let me tell you, we will defy that edict from the government if it comes down. We will defy that as a church. I know we will. I know my elders will. Because we stand for the unborn. And we will not offer health care from this organization that includes abortion coverage. We will not pay for that kind of unjust government action. We will not receive from the government things that they've borrowed. Let us rise above it. We have higher standards. Peter looked and said, who, who are we to obey? God? Or you, the, the council that he stood before? Who am I to listen to more? We're to listen to the Lord first. We're to pay attention to His principles first, even at the pain of potential suffering and punishment as a result of it by our government. Secondly, carefully sift through smooth rhetoric to identify whether a leader is concerned with the things of God or his or her own worldly agenda. Smooth rhetoric. That goes for anyone who speaks. Be it a pastor, be it a political leader, whoever speaks, whoever is in position of leadership, do not become enamored by their words. I, I, I've said it before, but I get really tired when I ask people, where do you go to church? And they say, oh, I go to so and such and such church. And I say, why do you like that church? Why do you enjoy where you go? And they say, the pastor's so funny. And I say, and I think to myself, are you kidding? Smooth rhetoric? That's why? Smooth rhetoric? That's why you're going to the church that you're going to? Smooth rhetoric? That's why you're voting for the man you're going to vote for? Smooth rhetoric? See through it. Look at the heart. Look at the actions of that leader. Do their words match what's happening on the ground? Thirdly, be immovable. Immovable in your commitment to God. Willing to suffer all things for the sake of honoring Him. Immovable in your commitment to God. I think that there are a great many sacrifices that may be yet to come in our culture. Sacrifices that Christians are going to have to make in standing up for things that we believe in. And if those sacrifices come, and suffering is attached to it, if those sacrifices come, and punishment is attached to it, if those sacrifices come, and imprisonment is attached to it, we need to ask ourselves, who are we going to pay attention to? Are we going to pay attention to the Word of God or to some government official who tells us what to do. Israel got in trouble because she accepted bribes and payouts. Because she bore allegiance with a pagan ruler. And she suffered for it. May we rise above it and call our nation and our leaders to higher standards. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, it's hard to um, 
It's hard to be aware, Lord, of many things in this world that we could so unwittingly get wrapped up in. Like receiving a check that is more than what we paid in. And Lord, it's so easy to just play ignorance. To say, I I didn't know. To to play the naive card, Lord. And to say, "I, I, I didn't realize. But Lord, we do realize now. You're you're opening our eyes more, God, that we need to be so conscious and aware of what is happening around us that we would not participate in that which is unjust. That we would be fierce in our defense of Christian principles, Christian values that come from Your Word And that are not dictated to us by any government official. Lord, we want all things to be measured by Your Word, whether it is just or whether it is unjust. We want to lift up all things to Your Word and say, is this proper? Is this prudent? Is this worthy of our dollars? Is this worthy of our investment? God, You're calling us to higher standards. Show us those standards. Help us not to be naive. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.